You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi everybody, CJ here. Welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 101, the next entry into our History of American Slavery series. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the effects that slavery had on sort of society and culture in the South in the antebellum period. But before we start getting into that, I've got to give a bunch of Patreon shoutouts. I sort of put out the distress signal a little bit last uh, episode, episode 100. By the way, it's been a been a while since episode 100, and you may have been wondering what was happening, and uh, basically a combination of being super busy with a ton of stuff, plus also getting sick at the same time. And that's what kind of knocked me out of action for the Dangerous History podcast, although I was continuing on reading and research for the show. But anyway... Patreon shoutouts, big thank yous go out to the following awesome individuals. Gary, Shanna, Troy, James, Andrew, Michael, Jarrett, Amy, Matt, Penny, Daniel, Paul, and Max have all stepped up to help out the Dangerous History podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Thank you all very much for chipping in to help out the show. And to all the rest of you listening, if you enjoy this show and want to help out, one great way to do so is to sign up via patreon.com slash profcj to give a per episode donation to the show. And if you sign up for any amount per episode, I will thank you by name in the next show that I make. And if you sign up for at least $1 per episode donation, you'll also have access to special bonus episodes that are available there and nowhere else just to my Patreon supporters at a buck or more per episode. And as always, you can go to profcj.org slash donate to find other ways to help out the show financially as well. So we're going to be talking a bit about the effects of slavery on society, kind of broadly speaking, in the antebellum South. And I'm anticipating that there'll be at least two more episodes in this particular miniseries, though it will probably not be consecutive In other words, I I probably will have some other things interspersed in between before I finish up this series on the history of American slavery. Now, as we've already mentioned several times in this series, many historians who've worked on the topic of slavery have pointed out the difference between a slave society and a society with slaves. These are not the same thing. And I think historian Ira Berlin summed it up very well in his book, Many Thousands Gone. Quote, What distinguished societies with slaves was the fact that slaves were marginal to the central productive processes. Slavery was just one form of labor among many. In slave societies, by contrast, slavery stood at the center 
of economic production. And the master-slave relationship provided the model for all social relations, husband and wife, parent and child, employer and employee, teacher and student. From the most intimate connections between men and women to the most public ones between ruler and ruled, all relationships mimicked those of slavery, end quote. So the difference between a slave society and a society with slaves isn't necessarily the treatment of the slaves. It doesn't necessarily mean that slavery is somehow nicer if you're in a, a society with slaves as opposed to a slave society. It may or may not be nicer. The, the real defining difference is how important slavery is to the economy and how much the whole concept of slavery pervades society. So when Ira Berlin says that all relationships are at least to some degree modeled on slavery in terms of subordination in a slave society, I think that's actually quite an understatement. And this whole idea has a lot of profound implications for understanding Southern history and culture and also understanding African-American history and culture. Historian Peter Colchin puts it this way, quote, Slavery affected the whole South, not just the slaves. Because the antebellum South was a slave society, not merely a society in which some people were slaves, few areas of life there escaped the touch of the peculiar institution. What is more, the centrality of slavery to the South became increasingly pronounced during the half-century preceding the Civil War. Slavery undergirded the Southern economy, Southern politics, and, increasingly, Southern literary expression. Slavery also buttressed the religious orthodoxy that set the South apart from the North, undermined the growth of a variety of reform movements, and helped shape virtually every facet of social relations, from the law and schooling to the position of women. End quote. So that's what we're going to be talking about, not Southern culture overall, so much as how did slavery impact the culture and the society of the different groups in the American South in the antebellum period. And a few things I want to mention briefly before we continue. One is to keep in mind that the cultural interaction and influence between whites and blacks in the antebellum South was definitely a two-way street. Not only was African-American culture influenced by the white culture that was all around them, but also white Southern culture was influenced by the culture of the slaves in various ways. Sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. So keep that in mind, that Southern culture, you've got this very complex interaction going on. Another thing to keep in mind is a concept known as cultural hegemony, which comes from the 20th century Marxist intellectual Antonio Gramsci. And what Gramsci means by cultural hegemony is basically how a ruling class uses culture, culture meaning things like beliefs, values, norms, etc. in this instance, how a ruling class uses culture in order to sort of maintain its position by letting the subordinate classes, the classes underneath it, by basically getting those classes to accept the ruling class's overall worldview and to see it as inevitable, as natural, as just the way things are, and ultimately as the best way of doing things for everyone, not just for the benefit of the ruling class, but for everybody. And this concept of cultural hegemony has been applied to American slavery by the late historian Eugene Genovese, most famously in his book, Roll Jordan Roll, 
The World the Slaves Made, as well as in some other books and articles by him. And what I've come away with from reading books like Roll, Jordan, Roll is that slavery, kind of like the state in this regard, ultimately does rest on force when push comes to bloody well shove, but that slavery, like the state, really operates most efficiently for the benefit of the ruling class when it's able to rely on voluntary compliance and support most of the time, and using force only on occasion when you really want to make an example of someone who is especially disobedient or nonconformist or otherwise a problem. So you're using culture and belief systems to get the people who are in the subservient classes to accept the system in which they find themselves. And it's a very, very powerful thing. So yeah, power does come out of the barrel of a gun. At the same time, though, power is most effective when it's really work into the belief systems, even of those who are under the boot of the powerful. Now, that said, this is also a two-way street as well. In other words, the non-dominant classes are, on occasion, able to manipulate the ruling class's worldview for their own ends. In other words, they're able to adopt the hegemonic belief systems and then use it to leverage themselves perhaps a better position or a better situation than they otherwise would have. So in the case of antebellum planters and the paternalism that they espouse, their sort of worldview of the way society should be, the slaves were sometimes able to use that worldview to negotiate, admittedly within the confines of the system, admittedly not to you know get freedom or anything like that, but to get themselves the best deal that was realistically possible given the situation at hand. And there's an important balancing act when you're studying this stuff where you have to, on the one hand, understand that the slaves are often trying to leverage and negotiate things for themselves, whether it's better material uh, conditions or leisure time or more autonomy or whatever it might be. But also keep in mind that this is not a, a free negotiation between equal parties in some sort of libertarian contract situation that ultimately there is the institution of slavery does exist. And even though slaves might be doing their best to try and negotiate themselves the best deals they can on an ongoing basis, there is a huge power disparity at the end of the day. So negotiation and leverage doesn't mean equal parties to a contract. So I just wanted to make that explicit. Probably most people get that anyway, but just so that nothing that I say or that I read, you know, quoting from another historian gets misinterpreted as somehow saying like, oh yeah, slaves actually, you know, were kind of able to negotiate their own contracts or something like that. Far from it. Now I want to mention a little bit about the Southern legal system in the antebellum period. And clearly what made it distinct from other regions of the United States was the institution of slavery. Because of course it, shared a common ancestor, uh, the English common law system, and it was under the rubric of the same federal constitution. And yet the Southern legal system had its own peculiarities, and those are all pretty clearly tied in with slavery itself. And where you see that stuff most clearly in the Southern legal system are in the so-called slave codes, the laws having to do with regulating, controlling the slaves, and in some cases even with extending some amount of protection to them as well. Slave codes in the southern United States 
placed severe restrictions and regulations on the lives of slaves. Among the restrictions one would find would be things like no legal ability to own property, things like you need your master's permission to leave his land or to be out after dark, things like you're not allowed to congregate in large numbers if you're slaves other than at church, things like not surprisingly, denial of access to firearms in a lot of cases. And in addition, many, though though not quite all, southern states banned whites from teaching slaves to read and write. In addition to that, slave marriages were not legally recognized. One thing that's unique to the slave codes of the United States, as opposed to, say, Brazil or the Caribbean, places that had slave codes um, you know, that are outside the jurisdiction of the U.S., is that the slave codes of the American South defined as racially black anyone with any known trace of African ancestry. So if you were, you know, one tiny fraction of your, your genetics were proven to have come from a person of African ancestry, you are black. And that's in contrast to laws in a lot of other parts of the Western Hemisphere where slavery existed, where you had various intermediate categories, you know, mulattoes, octoroons, a whole bunch of others. You know, in the case of Haiti, which I did a Patreon bonus episode on not too long ago, the French legal codes there before the revolution recognized, I forget, dozens of specific categories, depending on exactly what percentage white versus black uh, your ancestry is. So that's kind of shaped American racial attitudes to this day, the whole concept of any amount of black ancestry and you are black, right? Think about how many famous people who are often just referred to as black, identified as black or African American, are actually people of various types of mixed ancestry. How about Barack Obama? How about Halle Berry? How about Tiger Woods? How about Jimi Hendrix, right? We could go on and on. These people are often referred to and probably most commonly refer to themselves as black, though they're actually various racial ethnic groups mixed together. So that's somewhat of an American peculiarity in the Western Hemisphere to have those rigid, you're all black if you have a slight trace of African ancestry. Interestingly, when you look at the slave coats, you find that they're pretty harsh and draconian on a lot of things. And in fact, they were actually more harsh and draconian than the reality would have been on most plantations in actual practice. And the reason for that is because in practice, southern state governments would give very wide discretion to slave owners themselves to make the rules and run things on their own property. And so with that kind of latitude as a result, what slaves actually experienced was often not quite as bad as what the laws would really indicate. So, for example, some slaves were allowed to become literate, even in places where it was technically illegal, you know, if they had a nice master or just a laid-back master or whatever. Some slaves were allowed to, at least in practice, own property, etc., even though it might technically be in violation of the law. And in addition, many masters did at least to some degree respect slave marriages. And some even encouraged slave marriages because, A, it led to reproduction, and of course the children would be owned by the master too, 
And B, the shrewder masters understood that morale was important to slaves' productivity, and so they would try to keep their slaves as content as they possibly could, given the situation and the resources available. The more quote-unquote enlightened among the masters throughout the antebellum period tried, for the most part, to get slaves to do what they wanted to by incentive more than by punishment. Not to say that there weren't some masters and overseers who used the punishment quite liberally, but there were sort of, for lack of a better term, more progressive masters who tried to use positive incentives more than punishment and reserve the punishment only for extreme cases of disobedience and so on. Now, this discretion given to the owners of slaves obviously could be bad, because if you had a bad or sadistic or stupid or whatever uh, master or overseer, you could have a life that was especially miserable if you were unlucky enough to be a slave under such circumstances. But the point is that what slaves actually experienced on a day-to-day basis in practice could vary wildly, even within the same nominal jurisdiction. So it's tough to judge their experiences based on what the statute books actually said. That said, it's true that beginning in the 1830s, many legal restrictions affecting both slaves and also free blacks in the South began to be tightened, in part because of slave revolts, most famously probably that of Nat Turner in 1831, and also due to increasing fears about free blacks and northern abolitionists stirring up trouble with the slave populations. So both the letter and the enforcement of the Black Codes tended to be clamping down in the decades leading up to the Civil War. At the same time, during that, during that same period, the three decades before the Civil War, many southern states passed new laws making it difficult or sometimes in practice virtually impossible to free slaves. Even if the master wanted to free slaves, it would, it would be made difficult or impossible by state law. And also many southern states passed laws making it illegal for any free blacks to enter the state from elsewhere. And states that did still allow some amount of manumission, however restricted, in some cases passed laws that required freed slaves to quickly leave the state. And uh, they, I believe, would face re-enslavement if they didn't, you know, if they were set free and didn't vacate the state within a certain amount of time, they could potentially be subject to re-enslavement. And so as a result, the free black population in most areas of the South was shrinking in the generations prior to the Civil War, relative to what it had been just a few generations earlier. And only in a few urban areas, such as New Orleans and Charleston, could you find free black populations of significant size that at least some members of those communities were doing relatively okay for themselves, you know, financially and socially and so on. In most of the rest of the South, outside of the few big cities, that kind of thing would have been almost impossible to find. Now, antebellum slave codes also had a somewhat more benevolent-ish, or at least seemingly benevolent, um, paternalistic side to them, too. So, for example, slave codes also protected slaves from murder and uh, extreme mutilation, and oftentimes slave codes specified basic minimum standards of things like food, clothing, shelter. And at least theoretically, a negligent or abusive master could be subject to legal sanction for mistreating his slaves. And while that sort of thing didn't happen all the time, we do have records of cases like that happening and 
white judges and juries ruling against some slave owner for being particularly negligent or abusive. It did happen. Again, reality on a plantation as far as these parts of the slave codes maintaining standards of decent uh, physical conditions and so on, reality on a plantation could often vary quite a bit from the letter of the law. But I think nonetheless, these laws do reflect to some degree basic norms and expectations among the plant, the planter class who would have been disproportionately represented in the writing and interpreting of these laws, by the way. And this speaks to a phenomenon that's noted by many historians of American slavery and that I think we've mentioned in this series at least once or twice before, namely that at the same time, concepts of slavery and race were becoming more rigid in America the same time the slave was falling under increased surveillance and control in a variety of ways. While that was happening, their physical situation was, on average, measurably improving, and both law and custom and sort of social sanction were in fact encouraging many masters to be relatively, emphasis on relatively, more humane than earlier generations in regard to things like food, shelter, medical care, and also in regard to what types of punishments were and weren't used. Again, emphasis on relatively, you could still be whipped for various offenses and face other physical punishments as well, so don't misunderstand. But at least some of this improvement in material conditions was due to the planters trying to live up to the paternalistic ideal that they basically were trying to portray themselves as being. Some of it, no doubt, was also due to pragmatism. The idea, kind of like what I said before about attitudes towards slave marriage and reproduction, that if you keep a slave's health and his morale up, you'll probably keep his productivity up. Also, another thing driving some of this improvement in the material conditions of slaves was that as slavery came under increasing northern and foreign criticism in the antebellum period, planters oftentimes were making a conscious effort to improve their treatment of their slaves in order to diffuse some of that criticism. And so Southern publications intended for planters often carried articles encouraging material improvement for the slaves on those sorts of grounds. So, for example, in the 1830s, Chancellor Harper wrote in one of these journals, quote, it is wise, too, in relation to the civilized world around us, to avoid giving occasion to the odium which is so industriously excited against ourselves and our institutions. For this reason, public opinion should, if possible, bear even more strongly and indignantly than it does at present on masters who practice any wanton cruelty on their slaves." The miscreant who is guilty of this not only violates the law of God and of humanity, but as far as in him lies, by bringing odium upon, endangers the institutions of his country and the safety of his countrymen, end quote. And you can find many Southern writers between the 1830s and 1860 echoing these sorts of sentiments. I want to talk a little bit about some aspects of the culture that the slaves developed. Historian Peter Colchin describes the evolution of American slaves' unique culture as follows, quote, Masters never achieved the total domination they sought over their slaves. Slaves lived in a world that was influenced by, but by no means totally controlled by, the slaveholders' regime. The slaves managed to develop their own semi-autonomous way of life. 
Slaves at work were closely regulated, but away from work they lived and loved, played and prayed in a world largely unknown to the masters. Until recently, it was also a world largely unknown to historians. End quote. And it's always tricky trying to reconstruct this unknown world. There have kind of been two extreme tendencies among historians. One is to treat the slaves as almost passive objects upon which the master class exercises total will and dominance. That's a kind of an older tendency in, in the historiography. And then there's a more recent trend in the historiography to give the, the slaves some agency and humanity and autonomy and so on, and to talk about their independent community and that sort of thing. But sometimes that goes too far and almost loses sight of the fact that at the end of the day, these were ultimately slaves. So I agree with Peter Colchin when, in his book, American Slavery, he repeatedly makes the argument that you've got a kind of thread between these two um, extreme interpretations of what's going on with slave community and slave culture, that on the one hand, it's incorrect to see them as just passive objects of the master's will, but on the other hand, you can't lose sight of the fact that they ultimately are slaves and they are in this dependent, subservient, controlled position. You don't want to give the slaves so much agency and autonomy in how you're depicting their life and culture that you, you lose sight of the fact that they're slaves at all. Yes, slaves did what they could to have autonomy and community and culture and so on of their own, but there were real limits, and masters could always interfere with any aspect of slave life, including even nuclear family relations, if they really wanted to. Now, historians trying to get a detailed picture of what the world and culture of the slaves was really like, they have a challenge in terms of source material. Most slaves were, of course, illiterate, so very few of them left their own personal accounts. And, of course, accounts of white observers, whether they're Southerners or perhaps Northerners or foreigners traveling through the South, those accounts are just not the same as what you would get if you were getting the actual perspective of the slaves themselves. The two main sources that modern historians rely on most heavily to try and get a detailed picture of the slaves' culture, belief system, etc., are first, autobiographies written by former slaves, and second, interviews of ex-slaves done by the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s. Now, there are problems with these. For example, these overwhelmingly come from the late antebellum period, especially the decade or two right before the Civil War, and like any other source based on first-hand account, you have to take things with a grain of salt. You know, any eyewitness testimony can't be automatically taken at face value, no matter who it's coming from. And so you have to kind of cross-check it against other, other information and perspectives and sources and so on. That said, even if you don't take them at face value automatically, these sources can still illuminate a lot. And you find that there's this kind of subversive undercurrent to a lot of slave culture and ways of doing things. So, for example, according to historian David Brian Davis, slaves, quote, learned how to mock while seeming to flatter, how to lighten unending work with moments of spontaneity, song, intimacy, and relaxation, how to exploit the whites' dependence on black field drivers and household servants, and especially how to play on the conflicts between their masters and white overseers, end quote. So, 
you have to understand their culture often has a veneer of submission and subservience, but then a, a subtext that is subversive and sometimes highly so. And you've got to understand that this is a culture that is evolving within the situation of being a slave. And so it's a culture that is adaptive to trying to get by the best you can in that situation. And it's definitely a culture that had a sense of separateness. It was definitely different from any of the mainstream white culture around them, even though it interacted with them and had some influence from them, of course. Interestingly, some black leaders in the 19th century were concerned that the culture of the slaves, its sort of separateness or difference. So culture was one of the ways that slaves adapted to the circumstances in which they found themselves and where they developed this distinct culture of their own by mixing African and European elements and adapting them to the circumstances of life as a slave in North America. Music was very important to slave culture. Field hands would often sing as they worked to pass the time. And in addition, they developed spiritual musical styles in their churches, often with somewhat subversive messages. It was a way to cope with their situation, the the joy and the fun of music and dancing. And it was a way to communicate values and beliefs with each other, as, as music and arts and so on always are. Religion became very important to the slaves. By the beginning of the antebellum period, most slaves in America were Christian, and most of those were Protestant, save for a few areas, such as Louisiana, where there was some Catholic influence because of the French legacy there. The so-called Second Great Awakening, which was an evangelical religious revival movement in the antebellum period in America, swept across the country, north and south, and couldn't help but touch the slaves as well. Two denominations that grew the most as a result of the Second Great Awakening, both among blacks and whites, were the Baptist and Methodist denominations. And that's part of the reason why, to this day, most African Americans, if they are church-going, go to some sort of Baptist or Methodist denomination. Now, slaves were supposed to attend the same churches as the whites so that they could be supervised, but over time, they developed their own versions of Christianity, and some blacks, including some who were still slaves, began to be preachers, and they started to evolve their own churches. Black churches, as most people know, developed in a way to be more emotional in style than most white churches of the time period. And some churches mixed African religious elements in with Christianity, and most of them placed special emphasis on the messages of things like liberation and deliverance that can be found in some parts of the Bible. Of course, the master class wanted them to focus on the parts of the Bible that talked about submission and obedience and all that, but the slaves often fixated more on things like, you know, Moses leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and those sorts of kind of liberating and empowering messages. Historian Eugene Genovese writes of the slaves' religion that it, quote, developed into the organizing center of their resistance within accommodation. It reflected the hegemony of the master class, but also set firm limits to that hegemony. Black religion, understood as a critical worldview in the process of becoming, as something unfinished, often inconsistent, and in some respects even incoherent, 
emerged as the slave's most formidable weapon for resisting slavery's moral and psychological aggression, end quote. Folktales are an interesting way to gain insight into slaves' belief systems. And probably the most famous of the slave folktales are the Br'er Rabbit stories. And it's a common theme you find in a lot of slave folktales, that of an animal that is weaker, but is able to gain something for itself out of cunning and wiliness and so on. Peter Colchin writes this about slave folktales and the themes that you find in them. Quote, Notably absent from southern slave folklore are stories depicting heroic behavior. Rather, the dominant themes are trickery, subterfuge, and securing as much as possible of a desired item, often food, for oneself. Justice, fair play, and compassion for one's rivals rarely emerge as desirable characteristics. In short, surviving in a heartless world assumes overriding importance. End quote. So these folktales that survived and were passed down uh, many generations among the slaves contain information and themes and attitudes that will serve the slave in trying to get the best life that he can for himself within the confines of existing institutions. Family was something very important to slaves. And again, a way that they could try to adapt the best they could to their situation. Despite the fact that slave marriages were not legally recognized in the South, the nuclear family was very important to the lives of most slaves, as were extended kinship networks as well. Slaves tended to have somewhat more relaxed sexual mores than whites did. So, for example, they had less taboos against premarital pregnancy and that sort of thing than the whites did. And female slaves generally began bearing children at a younger age, on average, than did white females in the South. Interestingly, slave children growing up often enjoyed a surprising amount of freedom. It wouldn't be until sort of young adulthood or, or adolescence at the earliest that they would be fully put into their position as a slave and made to work a ton and all that. Frederick Douglass wrote, quote, The first seven or eight years of a slave boy's life are about as full of sweet content as those of the most favored and petted white children of the slave owner, end quote. In fact, some accounts of former slaves indicate that they underwent quite a shock when they suddenly had to start working upon reaching adolescence or young adulthood. And they suddenly had to start actually living like a slave day to day, working and facing discipline all the time and so on. And there are plenty of stories of slave children growing up alongside, you know, playing with, interacting and so on with the children of the master. And then suddenly they reach that, that age, you know, whatever it might be on that plantation where the young slave child now has to go to work, and now suddenly those those worlds are separate again. Now, clearly the slave families had somewhat different uh, norms and so on that they adhered to, but we can definitely tell that family was important to black slaves. And one of the ways we can tell is that there were a large number of slaves who, after the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, traveled all over the South trying to find family members from whom they had previously been separated and how common that was and how much extensive travel people would undergo looking for their, their family members indicates just how important it was to them. Families could be broken up by sale and transportation via the internal slave trade, most commonly being shipped out to the, what was called the old Southwest. 
and sometimes even a well-intentioned master who didn't want to break up a slave family might find himself forced to do so because of being in debt or some other financial hardship. And some estimate that about a third of slave families were disrupted to one degree or another by the slave trade. And as a result of this, as a result of the volatility and fragility of the slave family, extended kinship was even more important for for slaves than it was for whites in the South. Oftentimes, it would be your survival mechanism. You know, if you got shipped to some new place hundreds or more miles away from where most of your, your close family members were, maybe you would have some connection to somebody who was already out there, though. Now, despite taboos against it, interracial sex was relatively common from what we can tell. White slave owners or their sons or sometimes even overseers might have a black mistress, something that even if there's not direct violence or threat of violence in the relationship, I think you could say due to the power disparity could be characterized as some type of rape. And occasionally, of course, the worst among the uh, the owners and overseers might indulge in kind of more direct and violent forms of sexual assault. Now, how common was this sort of thing? That That's debated still by historians, but probably it was not as frequent as Northern abolitionists claimed, but it was certainly frequent enough that in the words of historian David Bryan Davis, it, quote, was sufficient to deeply scar and humiliate black women to instill rage in black men and to arouse both shame and bitterness in white women, end quote. So that's one of those things that, along with physical punishment, needs to be brought up anytime someone goes a bit too far down the whole, well, the slaves didn't have it all that bad path. Sometimes people will point to statistics about how many hours the slaves worked and how much food and medical care and shelter and so on they were provided and make arguments that, you know, they really had it pretty decent and they had it better than some white free workers and so on. But my answer to that would always be, well, if that's the case, then how come lots of slaves were constantly trying to escape and you really can't find any case of poor white northern laborers dyeing their skin brown and sneaking into the south and trying to sneak onto a plantation? That said, paternalism was a real thing. And even though it was clearly self-serving and helped accomplish and defend that cultural hegemony of the planter class, that doesn't mean that plenty of the planters didn't really believe it and didn't really uh, try to live up to it, this idea of paternalism. It was an important part of slaves' relationships with their masters, and thus it couldn't help but affect the culture of both slave and master. And it was really a very complex and often contradictory thing. Eugene Genovese on paternalism in Roll Jordan Roll says the following, quote, Southern paternalism, like every other paternalism, had little to do with old masses' ostensible benevolence, kindness, and good cheer. It grew out of the necessity to discipline and morally justify a system of exploitation. It did encourage kindness and affection, but it simultaneously encouraged cruelty and hatred. The racial distinction between master and slave heightened the tension inherent in an unjust social order. End quote. Paternalism was used to legitimize the master class's rule, to keep the slaves in a state of dependence, and also to prevent them from effectively unifying together with each other against the master class in any sort of strong, cohesive way. 
However, paternalism, as Genovese and others have pointed out, could also be used by the slaves as a method of low-level resistance. So, for example, Genovese says this, that, quote, the slaves, by accepting a paternalistic ethos and legitimizing class rule, develop their most powerful defense against the dehumanization implicit in slavery. Southern paternalism may have reinforced racism as well as class exploitation, but it also unwittingly invited its victims to fashion their own interpretation of the social order it was intended to justify. And the slaves, drawing on a religion that was supposed to assure their compliance and docility, rejected the essence of slavery by projecting their own rights and value as human beings, end quote. So just to give you one example of how this might work, of exploiting paternalism to the slave's advantage, many slaves who dealt with overseers were extremely skillful at playing their owner and their overseer off against each other. And their leverage with their owner often relied on this idea of paternalism. And so getting the owner to intervene uh, against an overseer who would be perceived as being unjust, unfair, and so on. And then the, the owner wanting to live up to this paternalistic idea might step in and, you know, fire a, a particularly nasty overseer or whatever. An interesting phenomenon you come across if you read up a lot on the history of American slavery is that many slaves, in kind of a weird way, though they might have disliked the institution of slavery overall and, and wished they were free, very often, in a weird way, they thought well of their own master, and they sort of felt that their master's awesomeness rubbed off on, or maybe you would say reflected on them, his slaves. So, sort of like, you know, kids arguing like, my daddy's cooler than your daddy or whatever, we have accounts of slaves arguing with each other, let's say two slaves each owned by a different master, arguing with each other, sometimes even getting to the point of physical fighting over whether my master is more awesome and cool than your master. That shows you the degree to which they've imbibed this uh, paternalism and hegemony and so on. So yeah, my controller, exploiter, oppressor is better than yours. I kind of can't help but be reminded of how some people today are with their politicians or their leaders. Two citizens of a different country or even of a different party within the same country, both arguing that their masters are the superior ones. And Frederick Douglass, the former slave-turned-abolitionist activist, remarked on this when he wrote, quote, Many think their own masters are better than the masters of other slaves. Indeed, it is not uncommon for slaves even to fall out and quarrel among themselves about the relative goodness of their masters, each contending for the superior goodness of his own over that of others." End quote. Again, I, I just can't help but mention, kind of reminds one of nationalism, doesn't it? And the attitude that nationalists have towards their own particular state authority, their own rulers. And that, yeah, you know, my, my rulers sometimes do bad stuff, but they're way better than the other rulers out there. They're, they're definitely, you know, the least of all evils when it comes to that. Well, anyway, before I move on to talk a bit about how slavery affected white culture in the South, I do just want to mention that if you want to get a lot of your assumptions about slave culture in America very challenged, check out Chapter 2 of Thaddeus Russell's book, A Renegade History of the United States. That chapter is entitled The Freedom of Slavery, and 
in it, Thad makes the case that when it comes to things like the work ethic and sexuality and sort of fun-loving cultural spontaneity, that kind of stuff, that the slaves were actually, in, in those respects at least, more free than white Americans of the time who were often under some degree or another of Puritan influence and mindset, a mindset that the slaves themselves never really absorbed, that they always saw as external. You know, they would work to avoid the lash and to earn privileges, perhaps, but they never really internalized this Puritan work ethic and the other Puritan mores and so on. So probably one of the more controversial chapters of that controversial book, but it's very interesting stuff. So let's talk a little bit about how slavery impacted the white culture in the South. And first we'll talk a bit about the planters and then briefly mention a little bit about the non-slave owners amongst white Southerners. Planter culture, you have to keep in mind, is a very small group of people, and yet it exercises a hugely disproportionate influence on Southern society and culture because of the influence and wealth and power and so on of this group. They really were planters in the antebellum South, cultural hegemons, not just in regard to their slaves, but in regard to poor whites as well. So to give you a sense of this, in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, less than 400,000 white Southerners actually owned any slaves. That works out to about 5% of the white Southern population, which was over 8 million at the time. By the way, the commonly cited statistic, I've cited it myself, that one quarter of white Southerners owned slaves. If you recall that common statistic, you might be saying, wait, that's more than 5%. And the answer is it depends on how you crunch the numbers, because that common statistic of a quarter of white Southerners owned slaves is arrived at by counting not just the legal owner of a slave who usually would be the head of household, but also by adding in everyone in the slave owner's nuclear family, counting them as a slaveholder too. So, you know, depending on how you want to how you want to slice it, if you only count the one individual in the household who legally owns the slaves, it's 5% of white southerners own slaves. If you count the slave owner's nuclear family as well, it adds up to a quarter. And of course, keep in mind that of Southern slaveholders, most were not large-scale slave owners or what would be called planters. Most owned maybe between one and, and five or one and ten. So with planters, we're talking about a tiny percentage, probably literally the proverbial one percent or thereabouts. And yet, despite what a tiny group these planters were, those who actually owned large pieces of land and large numbers of slaves, despite how, how small they were. And, and perhaps this isn't surprising in light of things like the iron law of oligarchy and the human tendency towards deference and so on. Despite their small numbers, the economy, the society and the culture of the South was heavily influenced by this little planter minority, all out of proportion to what their actual numbers are. And this despite the, the fact that the South, at least when it came to, to white males, was democratic. But again, this is almost always the case, whether there's elections or not. The elites almost always dominate any sort of power structure. It's in the very nature of things. Now, most of the time, the default attitude of most poor and middle-class Southern whites towards the planters was one of deference, though they could sometimes deviate around the edges. But the only areas of the South where you 
can relatively often find poor whites pushing back in various ways against the planter oligarchy are in the hills and the mountains, basically in, in southern Appalachia. By the way, should be noted, in the Civil War, these are the areas that will contain most of the Union supporters in the South. You look at places like eastern Tennessee or western Virginia, what becomes during the war West Virginia. These hill and mountain counties of these states were not in favor of the Confederate cause. Now, planters like to portray themselves as being very similar to and and in a lot of ways descended from, maybe not literally, but at the very least intellectually, from European aristocrats. Though the reality was that in most regions of the South, save for a few places such as the Tidewater Chesapeake, planters really did not often come from families who had been planters for many generations. In fact, on the eve of the Civil War, much of the South had only been cultivated and settled for about a generation or two. So a lot of the notion of being these ancient aristocrats with many generations of ties to a specific location, a specific uh, property and all that, were not really real. They, they were sort of a front. It's not to say that the, the planters themselves didn't believe it in their own way, but it's just not backed up by the objective history. Some historians argue that it was the fact that many areas of the South were still only recently removed from genuine frontier conditions, or in, in a few places, particularly in, in the Old Southwest, there were, some cases, there were some areas that were still really frontier in a lot of ways, that this caused Southern planters to kind of react by trying that much harder to act like and portray themselves as these deep-rooted aristocrats. Interestingly, there's evidence that many planters seem to have been very concerned with being popular with their slaves, and they wanted at least some veneer of consent on the part of their slaves to their authority. Apparently, this was something that's mostly unique to slave owners in the U.S. It doesn't seem to have been a common thing at all amongst slave owners in, say, the Caribbean and Brazil. There, it was much more pure reliance on, on force and threats and so on, and sort of pure coercion to get the slaves to obey and so on. But in the U.S., while, while the force was certainly there, there was much more of, in some cases, almost a seeming obsession on the part of planters to get their slaves to at least act like they really did respect their authority. Writing about this desire to feel popular with their slaves and to feel like they have some amount of consent from them on the part of American masters, historian David Brian Davis in his book Inhuman Bondage has a funny little speculative aside where he writes, quote, if slavery had persisted into the later 20th century, as Abraham Lincoln predicted in 1858, one can only half facetiously imagine large corporate planters passing out overseer evaluation forms to the slaves, end quote. Planters had a weird bipolar attitude towards business and commerce, as I may have mentioned before, and this is something that I've come across many times while reading for this series. And the planters, many of them claimed to hold the so-called money-grubbing Yankees, who are all materialist, in contempt for being only concerned with profits and so on. But many of these same planters, if you look into how they ran their plantations, they ran their plantations 
the, the more competent among them at least, ran their plantations with all of the discipline and organization and focus and meticulous record keeping and so on as any factory you would find up in the Northeast. So there's this simultaneous thing of deriding Yankee businessmen for their materialism and greed and for exploiting their workers. And then you look into how these guys are actually running their plantations. And in many cases, it's something that in a lot of ways looks very much like factory discipline. Kind of related to that, one way in which planters followed the example of European aristocrats in regard to attitudes on on careers was they held most careers in disdain. And other than being a planter and running a plantation, the only other career that this social class held to be acceptable was being a military officer. That's something you find, um, for example, very, very common amongst the British aristocracy and other European aristocracies. And this is why so many planters are military officers, because if they either were kind of like second sons of a planter family, or if they were perhaps from a planter family, but by the time they grew into young adulthood, their family was on economic hard times, then going into the military would be seen as about the only other career path that was really socially acceptable. Now, the planter class in the South did try to abide by a code of honor and chivalry and all that stuff. And as historian David Hackett Fisher showed in his huge but extremely important book, Albion Seed, the American South was disproportionately settled by people from what were in the 17th and 18th centuries, at least the more old fashioned areas of the British Isles, places like Scotland, like Northern Ireland, like the Southern part of England. Those who were not of Scottish or Scots-Irish heritage um, who came to the South often were the descendants of Englishmen who'd been on the cavalier side in the 17th century English Civil War, the the royalist side that was more kind of old-fashioned. And so these colonists from these more culturally old-fashioned and somewhat more remote and so on areas of the British Isles, they disproportionately made up a lot of the white colonists into the southern colonies. And they carried these attitudes and beliefs over to the New World with them, and they became an important part of Southern culture in general, and Southern elite culture in particular, the the antebellum planter culture. Another interesting book that looks into this stuff and in some ways sort of builds on David Hackett Fisher's work is a book called, I think it's Culture of Honor by Richard Nisbet, I think is the author. And he's looking at the question of how come just looking at the white population of the South versus the North in in current day America, there is a much higher rate of violent crime amongst white Southerners than amongst white Northerners. And also related to that, a much higher proportion of crimes, violent crimes by white men in the South are sort of crimes of passion and and personal motivation and, and things that almost seem like, even if they're not put exactly in those terms of honor and respect and whatever. And he makes the argument that in particular, it's the Scottish and Scots-Irish culture that they had this herder culture. You know, they were herdsmen of livestock back in the British Isles, and that those sorts of cultures tend to evolve much more of an honor-based culture where there's great emphasis on righting perceived wrongs and slights and so on, and a willingness to to get violent quickly over 
what other cultures would perceive as minor inconsequential slights, and that that is a big part of why the South has often, I think with justification, been seen as a, a culture that on the one hand puts more emphasis on manners than the North, but then the kind of flip side, the dark side of it is this uh, willingness on the part of many to get violent over relatively minor things. So there's this great emphasis on courtesy and respect and the potential for extreme reactions, what other cultures would see as wildly disproportionate reactions to any sort of perception of insult or anything like that. And this is why, for example, dueling continued in the South long after it had largely faded out in the rest of the country. You know, look into the the background and career of somebody like Andrew Jackson for more on that. Or, for example, why South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks famously beat the shit out of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the U.S. Congress over Sumner verbally attacking a relative of Brooks. This would be uh, 1850-something, near, near to the Civil War when things were really heating up between North and South. Now, I think that Fisher and Nisbet are in broad terms correct, that the the background of where the whites who settled the South, where they came from in the British Isles and what sorts of places and cultures they brought with them, that that's a huge part of explaining the South and its relationship with violence. But I would also add in two factors that I think also made this perhaps magnified in America and also caused it to live on as long as it has to where today, right, the South is one of the more hawkish parts of the country and a disproportionate number of military people still come from the South, etc. And the two things that I think magnified those inherent cultural tendencies and made them stick around so long are, number one, the institution of slavery itself. Because in a slave society, it's very important, especially when there's a pretty numerically significant slave population. It is very important that you try as much as possible to meet the ideal of every free adult male being a potential warrior. Because even if whites outnumbered blacks overall in the South, which they did throughout the antebellum period, in certain specific counties and and even regions, and even a couple of states, slaves outnumbered free persons. And so you had to have a culture that saw willingness to use violence and and the skills to use it effectively as being important because there's always the threat of a slave uprising. And then the second thing I would mention is that looking at least um, east of the Mississippi, violent clashes with Indians continued longer in the southern areas of the eastern United States than they did in the northern areas of the eastern United States. So you can go back and listen to some of the old episodes I did about the Seminole Wars, for example, where the Seminoles were launching these attacks from from Florida into places like southern Georgia. And so as a result, again, at least, at least when you're looking east of the Mississippi River, and perhaps you could make the argument that extends this trend extends even beyond the Mississippi River, but the southern part of the United States continue to have ongoing battles and wars with the Indians longer than the northern part of the eastern United States. And so, again, that reinforced this notion of you want as many of your free adult males to be at least competent with fighting and comfortable with fighting as possible, because you never know when a slave uprising might happen. You also, in many areas, at least for a while, you never know when hostile Indians might show up. 
and, and as evidence to back up this about the Indian problem lingering more in the South, look up Indian removal under President Andrew Jackson. It's trying to, to get rid of most of the Indian tribes that were still east of the Mississippi and kick them out to Oklahoma. And the tribes, overwhelmingly the tribes that were affected by this were southern tribes of Indians, the, the Cherokee, the Creek, the Chickasaw, the Seminole, and so on. So anyway, I, I think those those things, those two historical factors are what caused this honor culture with a tendency towards violence, uh, sort of a quick resort towards violence, to linger in the Southern culture longer than it might otherwise have. The existence of slavery and the, the longer experience of fighting against Indians. And this worldview of the Southern upper class affected gender roles and gender expectations and stereotypes as well. So upper class Southern whites pursued ideals of hypermasculinity for males and hyperfemininity for females. So men were supposed to be, you know, very macho manly men who, who gambled and, and drank and fought and hunted and did all this stuff and had this very tough exterior and all that. While on the other hand, the, the planter's wife and daughters were supposed to be the ultimate super girly girls who never got their hands dirty, who wore frilly lace stuff around all the time, etc. And you find that these ideals do filter down to poor white Southerners, who often could not afford to actually live up to these sorts of things, but who often tried to within the limits of their budgets and resources. So there's this attitude towards women that's one of, on the one hand, severe protection, but also an expectation of subordination and obedience. Antebellum Southern intellectual George, George Fitzhugh, who is one of the more famous guys for making arguments in defense of slavery to the point of saying slavery is a great thing. George Fitzhugh wrote this about women, quote, women like children have but one right, and that is the right to protection. The right to protection involves the obligation to obey. End quote. And so you find Southern families across class lines tended on average to be more patriarchal and more authoritarian than what you would find at the same time period in the North. And these gender expectations worked their way into work patterns as well. So on the smaller farms, women often did a fair amount of work and chores just by necessity. But on the larger plantations where you could afford a large slave workforce, almost any sort of work even a lot of domestic chores were seen as being beneath the Southern upper-class woman. On the other hand, fewer Southern women had access to education. Even wealthier Southern women from the upper class had less access to education than did women in the North. And so as a result, perhaps a quarter of Southern women in the antebellum period were illiterate. And while most of the women of the planter class would have been literate, most of their education would have been geared towards basically how to be a skillful, polite plantation mistress, and so on. Now, the culture of the poor whites is very often pretty similar in a lot of ways to like a poor man's version of the planter culture. And keep in mind, this is at least three quarters of the southern white population, depending on how you crunch the numbers. Perhaps more if you uh, don't use the practice of counting the entire family of a slave owner as being also slave owners, too. However you want to crunch the data, you come to the same result, which is that the overwhelming majority of white Southerners were small farmers who owned few or no slaves. And while occasionally a poor Southerner would move up into the slave-owning status, 
there was a lot less social mobility in the North than in the South during the antebellum period. By the way, people kind of knew this. At the very least, they implicitly understood it. And it explains why the overwhelming majority of immigrants to the United States in the antebellum period came to the North, not the South. They sort of understood, at least on some level, that there were far more opportunities for social mobility in the North than in the South. That said, even though the majority of Southerners did not own slaves and there was not that much class mobility, slavery clearly influenced the culture of poor Southern whites as well. And not just in terms of they often tended to emulate the upper class Southerners who did own, plant, who did own slaves, but in other ways as well. Now, the, the poorest whites in the South were those in the hills and mountains generally, and they were often very isolated from the larger world and economy, and much more of what they were doing could simply be described as subsistence. And these were, again, typically the most hostile whites in the South to the planter aristocracy. And they were even hostile to slavery, not so much because they, they weren't racist, they largely were quite racist, but... They they kind of had this, this class warfare attitude towards the planters. They didn't like him, and they saw slavery as the source of the planters' wealth and privilege and power and all that. On the other hand, though, a lot of these same whites in the mountains and hills who, who didn't like the planters and didn't like slavery really, really didn't want the slaves to be set free and let loose in the South. They, If they wanted to phase out slavery, they tended to be proponents of something like colonization or the idea of ship them all back to Africa. Numerically, though, most poor whites in the South didn't live in the hills and mountains, but instead lived kind of mixed in and amongst the plantations. And what you find is that non-slave-owning farmers in areas like this, where they're kind of mixed in sort of between plantations, often these people were still tied into the plantation system economically in one way or another, and they might even in some cases be connected through family ties of some sort to a planter. In addition, a non-slave-owning Southerner who lived in an area that did have a lot of plantations would be heavily encouraged and propagandized and so on into seeing the blacks above all else as a threat so that these poor white Southerners could be kept on the side of the planters and on the side of the existing status quo and as important auxiliary enforcers of the institution. And again, I think I've mentioned the slave patrols in previous episodes in this series was an important way to do this. Even the poorest of white Southerners would usually be strong supporters of the idea of slavery, even if they were quote-unquote poor white trash, which was a term that was already evolving in the antebellum period. Even if they were the lowest level of whites in the South, they felt like they could still take some pride by feeling superior to the blacks. The idea being basically that it's better to be at the low end of the ruling race than to be a part of the inferior race. Even though, ironically, there's a lot of historical evidence to show that the slaves themselves often look down upon these lower class whites. And I think there's some evidence and some theories that the first people to use this term of white trash or poor white trash were actually slaves using it you know, to derogatorily describe the poorer whites around them um, and contrast them with their owners who they would often portray in much more favorable terms. And again, that thing I mentioned before that slaves would sometimes argue with each other about who had the better master. Frederick Law Olmsted, a northern traveler and chronicler of the antebellum South, wrote of the poor whites, quote, 
from childhood the one thing in their condition which has made life valuable to the mass of whites has been that the niggers are yet their inferiors End quote. and you see this again in the kind of civil rights era where it's oftentimes the poorest whites who are the most harsh of racists and one gets the impression that a lot of it is so is that they're desperate to make sure that there's always at least one rung of society below them. And this whole idea calls to mind Bob Dylan's excellent song about this phenomenon, the song Only a Pawn in Their Game. And I'll see if I can put a link to that maybe on YouTube or something in the show notes of this episode. If you've not heard this song before, it's a fascinating song that really delves into the psychology of these poor whites who support slavery and later support segregation and and other forms of harsh racism. Believe it or not, poor and middle-class whites actually participated in electoral politics at higher rates in the antebellum South than in the North in the same period, and yet the Southern oligarchs were even more disproportionately represented in Southern politics than were Northern oligarchs in Northern politics. And I have to say, that is some skillful pandering and manipulation, and that is some very successful cultural hegemony. Howard Zinn wrote of the colonial era in America, quote, Only one fear was greater than the fear of black rebellion in the new American colonies. That was the fear that discontented whites would join the black slaves to overthrow the existing order, end quote. And this fear and this way of dealing it obviously continued right up past independence and throughout the antebellum period. And the only thing that really changed was, if anything, the Southern oligarchs got ever more skillful as the generations went by at managing this situation. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope it wasn't too bad. I'm, I don't know how much you might hear it in my voice or, or whatever, but I'm still getting over being pretty sick. Definitely still far from 100%. I feel a little bit spacey in my head, so I hope I wasn't too incoherent in this podcast episode. But next time, and I'm going to try and get this done in a few days if I can... I'm going to be, again, um, stepping away from the slavery series, coming back to it in a, in a few weeks, though, probably. But I'm going to be doing a standalone episode on the Irish Easter Rising of 1916, since basically right about now is the 100th anniversary of this very, very interesting rebellion. And not coincidentally with the whole timing and me thinking of this topic, I'm going to be leaving for Ireland in just a few days from when I'm recording this. And then I'll be in Ireland for almost two weeks, helping to lead a study abroad trip for my college. So I'm going to be releasing this Easter Rising episode either the day that I'm leaving on the trip or perhaps the day before at the soonest. And then that's going to be it for me for a while. But look for the Dangerous History podcast to return with another episode approximately the middle of May. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History podcast please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's 
profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.